Hello, hello, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong, and today I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had at the Habitable Worlds Conference in Laramie, Wyoming. This was a small astrobiology conference with fewer than 150 attendees. I didn't really know what to expect from it going in, and I was pleasantly surprised. The talks were all excellent, and the format of the conference fostered face-to-face discussion with fellow attendees. Instead of sitting us all in a lecture hall with rows and rows of chairs, the room was arranged like a ballroom with large circular tables that made it impossible to just ignore the people around you. And I got to meet some pretty cool people, including former NASA astronaut and chief scientist John Grunsfeld. John actually overheard me talking to another person I met at Habitable Worlds, Dr. Andrew Rushby, who is a postdoc at NASA Ames. Andrew was telling me about his podcast called Exocast, which is all about exoplanets and which you should totally check out. And in return, I told Andrew that I run a science and Star Trek podcast called Strange New Worlds. So John Grunsfeld comes by and, and sits down at our table and says, are you talking about Star Trek? And I said, yeah. So we had a nice chat about Star Trek. And I learned that John, who is now retired from NASA, dreams of establishing his own educational institution and would call it, guess what? Starfleet Academy. No joke. John also loves TNG, and his favorite episode is Darmok, which totally reminds me that we need to do a linguistics-themed podcast one of these days. Anyhow, back to Habitable Worlds. The conversation that I recorded and will share with you now was with two other amazing people that I met at the conference. Sarah Brothers, who works for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and Sean Domigal-Goldman, who is a scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Let's take a listen. So hello, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm joined today by Sarah Brothers and Sean Domingo Goldman. Um, I think the first thing we should do is make sure the audience knows who you are. So, who would like to start on an introduction? They're pointing at each other. It's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start. Uh, my name is Sarah Brothers. I am a. I have a PhD in geology with a background in planetary geology. I did my undergraduate research with the shallow radar on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's a radar that studies. Uh, water ice deposits on Mars. In addition to systems on Earth, I studied mixed sand and ice systems at the North Pole of Mars and how they record changes in planetary climate. I now work as an assistant program officer at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. I serve on the Space Studies Board and the Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board. And I'm Sean Domigal Goldman. I am a research space scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. I also started out as a geologist or a geoscientist, uh, but more studying uh, atmospheric stuff than the hard rock stuff. 
I'm an awful mineralogist, but I did a lot of geochemistry work uh, related to signs of life on ancient Earth, like isotopic evidence, which are like, you know, different masses of the same molecule or the same atom, or uh, atmospheric evidence that oxygen had arisen at one point in Earth's history, which it did do. We'll probably get to that later. Um, but then I started thinking about what that planet would have looked like as, a, as an exoplanet. So now I think about biosignatures and telescopes that would find biosignature signs of life on planets around other stars. So that's why I'm at NASA. Really awesome. So we're here at the Habitable Worlds Conference in Laramie, Wyoming, hosted at the University of Wyoming. And the, the, the main reason for this conference is to bring together astronomers and planetary scientists, geologists, and a few biologists to talk about whether or not we can assess if there are habitable worlds out there beyond our own solar system, and how we can detect whether or not they are habitable, and then how we can detect if they actually have life on them. And so- It's been it's, a fun week. It, it has been a fun week. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned so much and I'm, I'm just so excited to go back to Caltech and share it with, with everyone there. Now in Star Trek, there are plenty of habitable worlds in the cosmos. There's a new one for every week, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> and in Star Trek, most of the habitable worlds that the crews of the Enterprise and Voyager and now the Discovery, the worlds that they go to are often very clement and very nice for human beings to just take a shuttlecraft down or to transport down and go explore. And the terminology in Star Trek is an M-class world. It's one where you have no problem, you just materialize on the planet and you can immediately breathe the atmosphere. It's not too hot, it's not too cold. And I think it would be really interesting to have a discussion with you two about, about what it really means for a scientist to say habitable world and what it means for a scientist when we think about possible M-class worlds out there. Can we come up with a scientific definition for what an M-class world really is and how it is similar but different from habitability in general? Well, I think Star Trek provided your definition for an M-class planet uh -huh. <laughs> just by virtue of uh, a human being able to beam onto the surface and, and survive under the atmospheric conditions and breathe normally, not fry at high temperature or freeze at low temperature. Usually they're not beaming down onto an ice crust. You know, it's a terrigenous or continental setting. Um, so pretty much go out to Death Valley or Joshua Tree and, and you have your M-class planet. So um, in terms of like, what do we mean for habitable? Like it's, it really just comes down to water and that's actually true for the most part inside or beyond the solar system, right? So one of the reasons that NASA's made like press release after press release after press release about water on Mars is because everywhere we've looked for life on earth, we find it so long as there's a little bit of liquid water around. And that's also why we're really excited about the icy worlds in the outer solar system. If you hear about a habitable planet for an exoplanet, it's more than just a little bit of water. What that means right now is we actually haven't detected water on any of the habitable worlds yet. We found water on uninhabitable worlds, ironically, and we found potentially habitable worlds that are too small to look for water on yet. But what we mean when we say that is, is we just mean that the planet has conditions that would allow not just for liquid water, but a global ocean. And that's important because it's that global ocean that would lead to a potential global biosphere, which would then lead to a global signal given off by life that we could then detect from far away with the space telescope because it's going to be a super faint signal and the part of that signal that life contributes has to be sort of maximized and that's going to only happen if you've got these like global 
you know, global biospheres like we have on Earth. In the exoplanet context, it's not just about a little bit of water, it's about the potential for the planet to have a lot. We haven't confirmed that yet either, right? So we don't know if any of them actually have oceans. We just know the ones that we think are very unlikely to have oceans for like climatic reasons. They're too hot or too cold or too big or too small. And then the ones that aren't too hot or too cold or too big or too small, those are the ones we're calling habitable. But all we know is that they aren't any of those bad things. So it seems like the definition of habitability is the presence of liquid water. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the world is going to be M-class or habitable for human life or human-like life. So what else needs to happen on a planet for that planet to be not just habitable, but M-class? Oh, we need an atmospheres person. Wait, you're an atmospheres person. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing um, that I said at the very beginning, M-class is, is a world that you can just beam down to and suck in a breath of air and you're good. You're not going to suffocate, right? And so on Earth, we breathe oxygen. About 20% of the air that we breathe is oxygen. And, and Sean has studied the rise of oxygen on early Earth. I think it's a really important point to make that when we say an M-class world, in Star Trek, we really mean an Earth-like planet, a planet that looks like Earth and behaves like Earth, but Earth today. And right. Earth hasn't always been an M-class world. Now, Earth has had liquid water on its surface and probably lots of liquid water on its surface throughout its geologic history, at least going back to like four billion years ago. But it hasn't always been suitable for human life. And one of those key ingredients that you need in the atmosphere is oxygen. So, Sean, how did, how did we get oxygen on this planet? Well, it can't, thank your local algae or, well, your local plant, but the algae figured this out first. Is, you know, the, the oxygen we're all breathing comes from a process called oxygenic photosynthesis, which is the conversion of light energy into organic carbon, really, which can then be utilized to burn the same way we're burning the organic carbon for energy and for carbon building. But that, that was invented first by the algae, and actually they still do a, a big, big, big uh, portion of the oxygen production on modern-day Earth. That was actually pretty hard, I think, for biology to kind of figure out how to do it. I'm anthropomorphizing or whatever. What's the word? Anthropomorphizing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing the, the bacteria a little bit. Like, but it took a while for the bacteria for evolution to figure out how to do that. And that's partially because oxygenic photosynthesis actually requires the, the combination of two separate other photosynthetic pathways that both capture photons and then use that to like move chemical energy around inside a cell. So you had to sort of evolve photosynthesis once. Uh, with one one photocenter, you had to do it a second time with the second photocenter, and then you had to combine those two, and that's how you get oxygenic photosynthesis. For about a third of the history of life on Earth, there was no oxygen, right? So if, is it Spock, I guess, went back in time? Or which one's Spock and which one's Spock Prime? I guess, yeah, Spock Prime went back in time. So Spock Prime had gone back in time an extra, like, three billion years. Earth would not have been an M-class planet, right? Because the bacteria hadn't produced enough oxygen yet either because they hadn't figured out how to do that yet or because they hadn't overcome some of the like other chemicals on earth that would have prevented oxygen from rising you know if you, if you had gone back an extra three billion years by accident and missed his mark he, he would have needed a, a mask to get down to the surface <laughs> we, we would not have been an m-class planet three billion years ago but that i mean the short story is biology figured out how to make oxygen once you figure out how to do that as as an organism you have a huge competitive advantage over everything else because the amount of energy you get out of that is tremendous relative to other other reactions that could give a microbe energy and then it was probably pretty easy for that microbe or family of microbes that figured that out to just pro proliferate everywhere um, it actually would have caused a total this is a totally separate 
topic, but like it would have caused a total environmental catastrophe because you're actually changing all the chemistry of the planet like immediately all at once and you're causing climate change. You would have caused like a massive glaciation because oxygen would have taken methane out of the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas. It would have been a disaster. It would have been a toxin to some of the organisms there. It was a bad thing for a lot of organisms, but a good thing for us eventually. So I have a question. So light, whether it's from our sun or a star, is a very ready source of energy. Yeah. Has there been any work done looking at alternative compounds that can be used or can be created out of using light? I want to say photosynthesis, but creating different compounds. I don't know if there's been a lot of work thinking of new ways to do it, but I think that's partially because biology is pretty darn creative on its own. And so like we, you know, we're talking about oxygenic photosynthesis. There's organisms that the easiest way to describe them is they breathe iron. Um, instead of oxygen, but the only reason that those organisms can breathe iron is there's another set of organisms that when they use light energy are, are changing the oxidation state of iron. Mm -hmm. They're photooxidizing it and making these iron oxides that can then be utilized by these other organisms. So you can use light energy to make an iron oxide instead of oxygen. Uh, or Not you, you can't, but my friends can. <laughs> um, and, and the same thing can happen in, with sulfur. You can oxidize sulfur. So and in, in theory, you can do it with any redox pair, I think, in theory. And so how it, would that change what we would look for on another planet? Well, there's two, two problems. One is that, that the, most of the stuff, most of the other things that we have found that life could oxidize as a byproduct of photosynthesis are things that would, like, because this is probably happening in a water column somewhere, like mm -hmm. an ocean or a lake or a pond. Most of those stuff would stay, like, in that pond or that ocean or that lake, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, a, and especially like, like iron, the iron's actually a great example. It makes an iron oxide. That's like, it forms a mineral pretty readily, pretty easily. And that's actually just gonna kind of sink to the right. bottom of that water column. What you want, if you're thinking about like a remote observation, is you want that byproduct of the photosynthesis to get up into the atmosphere. So is that why all the emphasis tends to be on biosignature detection in atmospheres? Yeah, because that's where the signal is going to be the biggest. Okay. We look for atmospheric gases because we think that's where the biggest signal can accumulate. Although, you know, we have a bias because we're walking around on a planet whose biggest signal is the oxygen that's accumulated in the atmosphere. Right? Like if you were looking at, at Earth, the biggest whopping signal that, that as a scientist that there's life here would be the oxygen that's here. Whether or not that's the biggest signal possible or whether that's the, the first signal we started looking at because it's the one that is the biggest here, mm -hmm. like that... I actually think we need to be like, almost do the observations of these other planets first to find that out, right? right? Like, is it possible that the organisms could be creating some other thing that either is gaseous, has a gaseous byproduct, or the, the ocean chemistry leads to a gaseous byproduct being released to the atmosphere? I, I think that's theoretically possible. I just don't know off the top of my head what those gases are, because almost everything we do in terms of simulation of biosignatures right now is based off of the things life can do. Um, and a lot of times it's not just taking a literal modern day earth, but it's like, let's take this huge repertoire of things biology on earth can do and tweak the planet to incentivize one of those things that only happens in a little corner of a pond in one part of the planet and see if we can mm -hmm. find a way for that kind of life to colonize a whole exoplanet. And then what kind of signal does that make? Stage one is like, how do you detect modern earth? Stage two is how do you detect ancient earth? Stage three is take everything we know about all the life on Earth and tweak the planet to make that kind, little kind of weird life stand out. And then stage four, in terms of like more difficulty and thinking more outside the box, is have a like fundamental rules for biology thing, like model, that you could predict what an organism would do given that environmental input. We sort of just transitioned into biosignatures and yeah. 
what could be produced by well, life. Can, okay. There's an interesting thing here, which is life affects its environment and the environment affects life. Mm -hmm. This almost always happens when we talk about this stuff. Because if you ask a habitability question, one of the proper responses to that question is not an answer, but a question, follow-up question, which is habitable for who, mm -hmm. right? And the same thing is true about the biosignatures. The biosignature that you get is going to be responsive to its environment. So if you ask me, like, what's life going to do and what's the byproduct it's going to make, I'm going to ask, well, what kind of environment is it living in? This happens often. It's such a nested thing because the life affects the planet and the planet affects life. As soon as you talk about habitability, and you're inevitably going to talk about the biosignatures and vice versa. That's a great point. So what does an astronomer mean when he or she says biosignature? Well, it depends on the, the astronomer. <laughs> <laughs> to me, a biosignature is something that is produced by biological means that cannot be produced abiotically or mim the signal mimicked abiotically. Have we found anything like that? Because there is a profusion of research into how you can abiotically produce any of these biosignatures that right. are typically discussed. Well, and I, I think one of the important things about biosignatures is one of the things that's really hard for scientists to talk about is certainty and uncertainty. Because there's going to be a moment, I can guarantee it, when some astronomer in the future is going to have a detection of something that could be evidence of life. And then it's a series of increasing rigor in confirming that it was life that made the thing that the astronomer or team of astronomers more likely saw before they publish a and before the rest of the science community is convinced that that's what they found b right i think for even the first of those steps like i personally don't think any scientist should be putting their name on a paper where they say that they have found evidence of life elsewhere unless it's a series of signals a series like it, it's not one measurement right if you're looking for evidence of life on Mars, it's about the environmental context, which is like a mineralogical one almost for your, your signature. And it's actually, you probably should have a series of measurements that independently confirm that there's life. Same thing is true if you get some ice sprayed out from an icy world and, or ocean world and outer solar system. And the same thing is true for exoplanets. The one exception would be like, someone said this earlier, like if we got a radio transmission. I was about like, to say with pi embedded in yeah, the signal. Yeah, with pi embedded in the <laughs> signal. But I would argue like even then, you're probably going to have multiple lines of evidence there, right? Like, because mm -hmm. A, you got a radio signal. B, you got to confirm that it's not localized and not just some, you know, someone playing a prank. C, you got to analyze it for pi. So it's it's actually kind of the combination of the radio signal and the intelligence embedded within it. Mm -hmm. And and this is kind of a general truism of biosignatures, right? Like you have to you have to think about the context of what you're seeing, and you have to think about it in as much detail as possible. So one of the things that we've been talking about at this meeting is oxygen and the detection of oxygen in exoplanet atmospheres may be just around the corner in the next few years and oxygen as we've talked about for the case of earth and other possible m-class worlds is a byproduct of a global biosphere that developed oxygenic photosynthesis but the detection of oxygen alone is not necessarily a detection of life because there may be what we call false positive detections meaning that it wasn't life that made that oxygen. It was abiotic processes like escape of hydrogen from the atmosphere to space or dissociation of carbon dioxide, which forms oxygen as a, as a product. So Sean, if you detected oxygen in the atmosphere, what else would you want to add to it? Like you were saying, you would want multiple different signals for life. What else would you add to that oxygen to be able to more definitively say that that was made by life. So uh, if we had oxygen and water and methane all detected in the same atmosphere at the same time, 
I would be willing to put my name on a paper that said we found evidence of life on an exoplanet. For the reasons we're talking about, I'd expect there to be a lot of pushback. counter pushback, counter papers, you know, a week, a month, a year later. But I personally, on my work would and others' work um, and my assessment of all that, my own judgment would be to say, yeah, let's write the paper if we've got those three guesses. I'm curious what you think, Sarah, because I, I think one of the challenges, so this is one of the fundamental challenges to astrobiology mm -hmm. is we're doing things to allow us to make really bold claims. And when that happens, I'm not going to be the ultimate judge of whether or not we were right. And it's not going to be my thesis advisor. It's not even going to be my thesis advisor's competitors in our field. It's not going to be anyone that I work with on a daily basis. The ultimate arbiter of our detection of life is going to be scientists that don't come from the mm -hmm. same area of research that, that I work in. So like Sarah's opinion on this in some ways is more important than mine, right? Like, like you're, if you ask me that question, you're asking the, the person that wants to write the paper that says, yeah, we crossed the finish line. Mm -hmm. But Sarah's going to be the one and representative of the, of the kind of person that, that knows enough about the scientific method and enough science to say, hold up, like I'm not convinced yet. So I'm kind of curious. Like, do you think we're just like bonkers? Like, are we? No, I don't. My gut tells me that first of all, I want to see it divide itself in a lab. Right. And I tend to fall more on the conservative side. And so I would wait for an organization like AGU to come out and actually put their name on it oh. and say there has been a substantial, a sufficient consensus amongst the international scientific community huh. that, you know, this is a detection, a positive detection of life. So that's interesting. For you, it's almost the, it's the community's assessment versus the, the Because the, I'm not the an expert. No, I, I, no, yeah, I, I personally, I might be swayed and, and I want to be an optimist and say, you know, this would be wonderful and yeah. I would be excited about it and yeah. I would be willing to entertain it until it had been very thoroughly shut down. Yeah. But I wouldn't, try and inform my own evidence-based decision because right. I don't have a deep enough understanding right. of the science. Well, and what, so what's interesting about this is I've been thinking about what has convinced me as a scientist that, that climate change is caused by human activity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's been really convincing to me is the consensus yes. that climate scientists have on that question. Right. And I don't mean like how did they like get people to agree with that assessment. It's how did they develop consensus for or against in the first place. Like how does that process happen? Mm -hmm. And how can we as astrobiologists develop the same tools to measure, uh, is probably the better word, measure the amount of consensus on a subject? Well, it happens like very surprisingly slowly, which is you know a measure of robustness in the field, that there was a substantial amount of... And you're talking about climate change. Climate change, yeah. Okay. So there was a substantial amount of skepticism at first, and it's been a very slow process of the skeptics doing their own evidence-based research yeah. to then come to the conclusion themselves. Huh. That's interesting. So, so maybe, maybe that's a, a kind of a long answer to your question. Maybe what happens is, you know, someone writes a paper, it'd be awesome if I was on it, <laughs> that says like we found life. Mm -hmm. and, and I honestly would, if I wrote that paper, I would honestly be disappointed if no one pushed back on it. You should be. You know, but whoever's on the, the original paper and whoever's on the like pushback papers, they should all be making their own predictions of what would we would observe next if they were right. Yes. If the people that wrote the first paper that said we found life are right, mm -hmm. over time, we would knock out the alternate explanations one by one with further analyses. My prediction with something as big as discovering life on another planet 
is that it would take nominally one extra mission cycle. At least. To come even close to a consensus. Because once you've detected it, once, you know, once we've done the scientific double take, there's something there. We have to go through the process of developing new technology, better technology, to try and quantify it and to further study it. And then not only develop the technology, but build it, put it into space and get the results back, do the analysis, write the papers. And what's what's really hard about that is the timescales in which we do this stuff yes. is so long. Let's assume that we get, and we haven't gotten into the missions yet, but like, let's assume we get like one of the missions we're talking about flying that would look for these biosignatures. We almost need to start thinking about what the follow-up mission would be now. Yes. So that by the time we make the decision on the follow-up mission, it's, it's sufficiently mature for it to go forward. What's even harder to think about is the timescales are so long, we'll have to decide on the follow-up mission before the first mission But we're doing it right now. We're seeing this in the community. James Webb hasn't launched. We're getting ready for the next planning cycle. We're getting ready for the next next one. The next, yes. And and we're basing our decisions off of two mission cycles ago. So let's let's um, make this plain for people. This is like the science version of Inside the Beltway, (laughs) what we're doing right now. Okay, so we, we have mentioned James Webb Space Telescope on this podcast before. Numerous astronomers and planetary scientists are all looking forward to this telescope, which will launch hopefully in 2019 and be sort of the next generation, next step over the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been with us for the past 27 years and has done wonderful things for us. But what we've been talking about here is that we need to think about what's coming after James Webb, even though James Webb hasn't even launched yet. And one of those next next generation telescopes is a project that you're working on, Sean, called Louvoir. What does Louvoir stand for? It's an acronym. Yeah, so Louvoir is an acronym, and, and I think most people on, on the mission even would acknowledge it. If, if it were to happen, I probably wouldn't keep that name. Most okay. of these missions, ha- they start off with like a description of what it observes and, or what it does, and then if it actually becomes a mission, it usually gets named after somebody. Um, we could speculate about who, but that's a different podcast maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So Louvoir stands for the Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor. Surveyor isn't an acronym, but it's a Louvoir Surveyor. The idea is twofold. One is to do as much exoplanet science as it possibly can within like a, a flagship's level budget. So like one decade's decadal survey is worth of money, basically. But the second thing is not to only focus on the exoplanet science and, and the biosignature stuff, but also the cosmic origins, the general astrophysics science. So if you if you want a mission that can both search for signs of life on exoplanets and put those discoveries in the context of the history of the evolution of the universe that led to those planets forming, then Louvoir is the mission for you. Louvoir is going to be, if it's selected and built and launched, it will be the replacement for James Webb, basically. It's the, uh, the observatory, the space-based observatory for the 21st century, as, as was quoted in one of the talks today. So what makes Louvoir so powerful? and better for searching for biosignatures than James Webb, than Hubble, than all of the telescopes that have come before it? There's two things. One is that you need starlight suppression. If we don't do anything else about it, the star is going to blind us from seeing the planets that are next to them. Everything we know about these planets around other stars comes from us seeing the star wobble around as the planet goes in orbit around it. If you want to actually get more information on the planet itself, you really want to get a picture of the planet itself. Um, And that means blocking up the starlight. Someone gave the analogy today of it's like trying to see a firefly next to a floodlight from the other side of the country. 
We actually did the math on that. That's only true if the firefly's dead or if it's not lit up. Like, because you're basically, you have to see the light bouncing off the firefly from the floodlight yeah. from across the country. So that part is really hard. And to be honest, if we wanted to fly Louvoir like today, we would not know how to do that well enough to like launch that telescope today, right? So part of what's going on with all of these studies, including Louvoir, is figuring out how much how to develop the technologies we would need for Louvoir in time for it to begin its its phases of, as an approved mission. So that's one thing. You have to block out the starlight. That's hard. There's ways to do it. We're working on it. We know how we think we know how to do it in theory and in practice. We just have to get better at it. The second thing you need is you need a bigger aperture. If you build a bigger telescope, it helps in multiple ways. But the two simplest ones are. These are going to be the faintest things we'll have ever observed. They are fainter than the faintest things Hubble's ever seen. They're fainter than the faintest things JWST will have seen. And, and the way you see fainter things, like if you want to take a really good picture at night, you need a camera with a bigger lens to capture more light all at once, right? So if you want to see faint objects, general rule of photography or astronomy is a bigger lens, a bigger telescope helps you out, a bigger detector ray helps, all that stuff helps you out a lot. So the bigger aperture really helps with the faintness of them. It also helps... Because if you've got a bigger aperture, you, you get better spatial resolution. This is the equivalent of going from like a standard definition to like an ultra high definition television in terms of how fine detail we get of a picture of the things that are out there. And that's true of galaxies and all the cosmic origin stuff that you get beautiful Hubble images on. Imagine an upgrade from like standard definition Hubble to like ultra high definition Hubble. That's one thing we get. But that's important for the exoplanet astrobiology because in order to see the planet, it has to not be in the same pixel as the star to begin with. And so the bigger your telescope, the, the more distant away those planets and stars can be when you'll still have the ability to separate them. Because if the star and the planet are on the same pixel, it doesn't matter how well you're blocking the starlight, because then you're blocking, blocking the planet light as well. So that was a long answer, but it's, it's complicated. So it sounds like to build a great telescope, you need a larger aperture, yeah. and you need to be able to su suppress the starlight uh, yeah. of the star that the planet is orbiting. That was an awesome... Too long, didn't read version of what I just said. <laughs> well, how about the sensitivity to the wide range of different wavelengths of light? Because it's right in, in the acronym's name. It's yeah. ultraviolet optical infrared. Right. Does that contribute to the, the power of Louvoir as well? It, it does uh, in, a, in a few ways. I mean, in general, if you ask me, like, what do I want as a, like an astrobiologist? I want the full wavelength coverage. You know, I want to see every single of color that we can reflected off of that planet or emitted by that planet because that's going to give you more molecules that you can search for. And the more molecules you can detect or see the absence of, the stronger your biosignature case is going to be. If there was some imaginary telescope that could go from the U, like from like 0.1 microns way down in the UV to like 30 microns all the way out in the infrared, then you might not need multiple generations of missions because you could get all the information all at once. It turns out that it's really hard to get the full wavelength range all at once. And the reason has to do with telescope temperature of all things. If you want to see further and further and further into the infrared, you need to be colder and colder and colder. The reason is infrared light is it's the light predator sees. Um, I'm dating myself a little bit now, but you know if you want to see light or it's night vision goggles, they see they see the heat emitted by things in the infrared. And the warmer something is, the more light it's going to give off of infrared color. So if if your telescope is warm and you're looking in the infrared, the only thing you're going to see is your telescope shining. <laughs> At your detectors. So you have to be cold if you want to look in the infrared. If you want to look in the UV, the thing that ends up hurting you the most is crud that like crystallizes, like freezes out on your telescope. And the way you avoid stuff freezing out on your telescope is you make it warm. <laughs> <laughs> I see the problem now. Yeah. 
So if you want UV, you have to be cold. I'm sorry, if you want UV, you have to be warm. If you want IR, you have to be cold. You can't do it all at once. All right, so... Just one quick thing. Yeah. We struggled with this on the Louvoir team and previously on like the previous incarnations called that last year. Like We wanted to go further and further into the infrared, and the thing that limited us was this fundamental tension between UV telescopes wanting to be warm and, and IR telescopes wanting to be cold. So I get jazzed so up are you about actively, it. Is it being actively cooled? It's being actively warmed. Okay. So we, we, are, we are designing the telescope to be warmer than it would be if we just let it sit out there in space okay. in order to avoid contamination on the mirrors from it being too cold. And actually, one of the first things that if Louvoir were to fly, what it'll do is it's going to turn on the heaters. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So Sean's amazing new telescope is going to go up eventually uh, or something very much like it. And it's going to return possible biosignatures, hopefully. And Sarah, you said if those biosignatures come back, you would want a committee or an organization of wide-ranging scientists to sign on to the fact that that was a detection of life before you would believe it. And you work for <laughs> one such organization. We uh, try not to put our name on big things like <laughs> that. <laughs> So you work for the National Academies, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you guys do. Absolutely. Well, I don't, I don't know that we would ever agree or disagree that we had um, that the scientific community had positively detected life. The National Academies is strictly nonpartisan and unbiased. Our job is to act as a liaison between the scientific communities in science, engineering, and, and medicine and the federal government. So uh, the federal government comes to us for advice, and they say, we need you to bring together experts in this field to advise on this topic. And we go and we find the experts, and we can organize their efforts and their conversation, and then we produce their recommendations and give them back to the federal government. I work for the Space Studies Board, our biggest sponsor, so the agency that most frequently comes to us is NASA. We also do some work with the National Science Foundation. Cool. And, and it's, like, if you think about it, the, the, ro the role they play in all this is critical, because if, if you just let us scientists decide what to do, like, we'd say, like, well, we'll do everything. Like, we'll do that IR cold telescope, and we'll do the, the, the warm UV telescope. Like, it is very, very important that, that we have consensus, not just on the back end, after we've made the observations and try to figure out what, what it is that we've seen or not seen. But on the front end, developing or measuring consensus on what we should be doing in the first place. And that's such a critical role that the National Academies play. They're, they're not deciding what the consensus is, per se. They're bringing the science community together to help identify what that consensus is. So one of the reasons I'm at Habitable Worlds this week is to uh, NASA has really put a lot of effort into focusing their energies and, and their organization in astrobiology. And they want to know how they're doing. And they want to know from the community if they're doing a good job, and more importantly, what they could be doing better. And where, given the current state of the field, they should be turning their focus. And so I'm here kind of identifying what that conversation needs to look like when we get our experts in the room so that they can then tap into the community consensus, and we can provide that back to NASA. So it sounds like you do a really awesome job bringing scientists together to, to come to some kind of agreement. I hope it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you think the scientific community could improve on in terms of its communication within itself? 
I think coalitions like this, honestly, this is the first time I think I've ever seen one that seems like it's being successful. Yeah, fingers crossed. I'm going to break a rule. Yeah. Um, One of our biggest problems was, you know, scientists are notorious for going into the lab and talking to their collaborators, but not breaking outside of that. I I had an interesting conversation with my my thesis advisor. I guess, no, it was my postdoc advisor, who was also a product of my dissertation advisor. And he, he commented, I was one of the few scientists who could sit down with him and have a conversation without him ever having to define a single thing. And we could just walk into that conversation and there was no catch up that had to be played. And that would go for even if he got scientists who are experts in the same field from other labs. And that is because science is inherently a niche topic. You develop a vocabulary, you develop a way of thinking in your own lab. And that that really hinders the communication outside of your lab. And I definitely agree with this very interdisciplinary nature of astrobiology. Every time I go to an astrobiology meeting, I learn something completely new about a subject that I had given very little thought before, whether it's biology. Like at this meeting, I learned that phosphate is a limiting nutrient for life. You know, in the, in the ingredients for life, you usually list carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen. Then maybe if you're, uh, if, you, if you remember, yeah, uh, it's sulfur and phosphorus next. But you, you never really think about phosphorus as being the critical thing that determines how productive a biosphere might be on Earth. And it gets weirder. You know what else is one of the limiting nutrients? It's something you didn't even mention. It's iron. Like you can actually, you can actually get organisms to like do more biological productivity in some environments if they're not phosphorus limited. They tend to be nitrogen limited. Uh-huh. But the way you get them to get more nitrogen is you give them iron, and that's that helps them make a molecule that lets them grab nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Some of the organisms, and this is the kind of thing. It's like I don't even know what does that mean for an exoplanet. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Yeah. But it's awesome when you go to a meeting and people are asking questions that no one has the answer to, mm-hmm. and maybe someone in the room has an idea of how to even address it. Well, let me ask a question to you, too, that maybe you have an answer to. So my question is, if you were to write an episode of Star Trek that will come out in the near future, right now Star Trek Discovery is on, and I'm not sure if you've you've been following that, but, you know, they've been going to the classical M-class planets, but if you were to write an episode where they went to a planet that was habitable and inhabited by some alien life form, but this wasn't an M-class planet. It wasn't just safe to beam down to. What kind of planet would you want to write that story about? And what kind of alien life would you imagine would be on that planet? Can I give you two? And you can take them both or either one. <laughs> I'll, take okay? both. I'll take them both. I'll take them both. So I love both of these planets. One would be something like maybe class A for Archean, right? So Archean Earth mm-hmm. is the era we were talking about before where the biosphere was present on the planet but it wasn't making oxygen and maybe it hadn't figured it out yet. Maybe something else was keeping it from, from figuring it out. And so the planet was inhabited, not by like other things that would like attack the crew. So maybe that, that's probably why there's not an episode about it because there'd be no, <laughs> no one around to get in a fight with. But it, it would have been habitable and inhabited. The other one is, it's, it's actually the opposite, right? So imagine they go to a, a planet. It has an, like an ocean and a breathable atmosphere, but there's no life on it. And maybe that's because like the photochemistry or the activity from like the flaring like cooler type star is creating the oxygen and making the planet breathable, but there's no life. That'd be the other cool one I'd love to. I'd love to see a Star Trek episode about like them figuring out why 
this breathable planet didn't have life. And then the weird thing would be like they probably just contaminated it with all the bacteria they've dragged along with them. Mm -hmm. And if they went back like a season or two later, that planet would have life. You know, that'd be that. I, that's the episode I'm seeing. That is such a cool episode. I, I can't top that. I'm just, I'm going to second that. I want that. I want that episode now. Yeah. That ties together so many of the different themes that we've been talking about today with the uh, false positives for oxygen in terms of biosignatures. We didn't really touch upon these flaring, low mass, cool stars, but that was a major theme in this conference. Did we talk about that? Did I mention that? Maybe we didn't mention them. Well, yeah. we, they kind of, yeah. They yeah. came up a lot this week. They they did. They did. It, yeah. it was um, that'd be the other cool one. Yeah, a, a, an M class planet around an M dwarf star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these stars are called M dwarfs. So like a class M star, I guess, not to be confused with a class M planet. This um, episode sponsored by M and M. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, anyhow, so these these stars are notoriously good for finding planets around because they are so small. So it's easy to detect either a planet's transit or the wobble that the planet is inducing on the star. But one big question for our community is: Could a planet in the habitable zone of that star actually be habitable because these stars are notoriously active and flaring and put out a lot of ultraviolet radiation that could erode a planet's atmosphere and blow it off and create a, a false positive oxygen signature like Sean said and so if, if the crew of the Discovery went to a M dwarf star found an M class planet there with oxygen but no life, and then contaminated it and came which back. Which then brings season. in the planetary protection. Yeah. Act, oh my goodness. Which oh. is another podcast in and of itself. We're going to be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> be careful, spacefarers. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else that I should have asked you guys? Did you want to talk about your uh, relationship to Star Trek, if, if you have one, or any fun stories? Oh, I was raised with Star Trek. Okay. Absolutely. It has been essential and, and seminal in my going into. First, planetary geology, and now space policy. My grandfather was on the board of the McDonald Observatory in, Austin, in West Texas, um, and so I spent the summers going out to star parties and looking at the stars through the telescope, and then, you know, grew up watching the original series. Kind of, by the time I was old enough to really watch serial television and understand it, it was Voyager and Deep Space Nine, so uh, I think I was probably most impacted by watching Voyager, which was really the only show that really emphasized exploration, at least in the first few seasons, and really captured the peaceful exploration for scientific purposes. It was a scientific research vessel. And, and then I kind of, once those went off the air, I went back and rewatched all the next generation. And so that's kind of my second love or the next generation. And, and I have a beef with Star Trek reboot because it is too militaristic. I can't follow that answer. I mean, I, I here's my my imposter syndrome coming out, right? Like, I'm a nerd, but I, I've watched, like, the original series, which I only watched a couple of years ago, and a couple of the movies, and I don't remember which so ones. So you and my husband can go hang out. Yeah. I'm a Star Wars nerd, and if it makes you feel better, Trekkies, uh, your planets are better. The science is more accurate. Like, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Is there science in Star Wars? Well, that's, actually, you know... There may be more, more, <laughs> more science roots for Star Trek, but I love the worlds that are depicted in Star Wars. Yeah. And I hope that I'm not losing half of my audience right now. But, you know, there's such a variety of, of, of different planets. Uh, you get these volcanic planets like Mustafar, and then these snowball planets like Hoth. Right, it's, forest, it's, uh, The forest moon of Andor. Andor yeah. Except, you, you know what the coolest planet is that they go to in Star Wars? Uh, the water one. Camino. Earth. They go to Earth? What? Because it's where all those were filmed, 
right? So Earth has the ocean planet and the, and the forest planet and the desert planet and the ice planet, right? Like, whatever your favorite Star Wars planet is, like, we have it here. Like, you could probably, like, spend a lot of money, like, going to visit them all. Like, when people say, what's your si favorite sci-fi planet? I always say it's Earth because it's the one that, like, has everything that we're just tweaking to, like, make really exotic and weird somewhere else. But Well, great I think answer. that's a great note to end this podcast on. So thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Sean, for joining me. It was a real pleasure to talk to both of you and, and learn cool things from both of you. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having us. That concludes episode 22 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Sarah Brothers and Dr. Sean Domigal Goldman. You know, the more I learn about what makes a planet habitable, the more fascinating the worlds of science fiction become. Star Trek depicts a galaxy that is full of not just habitable planets, but of M-class planets. And the difference is fundamental. Remember that a habitable planet, in the general sense, is a planet that is Earth-like in size and characteristics such as water content, and that orbits its star or stars at the right distance to have a stable, friendly climate. Now, being a habitable planet says nothing about the actual inhabitants of that planet, or the nature of any life that may have arisen on it. But an M-class planet is a special type of habitable world on which life has arisen, and on which that life has produced a breathable amount of oxygen in the planet's atmosphere. So when depicting such a high occurrence rate of M-class worlds, Star Trek is making striking statements about the frequencies of three things. One, the habitable worlds in our cosmos. Two, the origin of life on such worlds. And three, the evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis. All three things are required for producing the worlds in Star Trek, Vulcan, Kronos, Romulus, Cardassia, and any number of planets of the week. Science is just beginning to understand what those frequencies actually are in our galaxy. And I look forward to finding that answer and being able to share it with you. Until next time, see you out there.